This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly sponsored by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. As a city supporter, we know you value delivery and McDelivery is up there with the very best. You'll always be winning with McDelivery because just like Kevin De Bruyne, McDelivery puts your order right on a plate. So the only thing left to say is, are you in? Order now on the McDonald's app and you can also get rewards points delivered as well. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for you tomorrow. Only via the app at participating restaurants, 18 plus, rewards registration required, points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Manchester United 1, Manchester City 6, it's 2 for Dzeko. Tottenham Hotspur 3, Manchester City 4. They have made the impossible possible. Hello and welcome back to the City Report podcast. I am Amos Murphy. I'm Adam Booker. Whilst I'm melting still in this inferno of a country, Adam, how are you? It's been a while. It's been about a week since we last recorded, and we'll explain why in a moment. But how have you been? I have been well. Uh, football seems to be going uh, well for everybody yeah, related bad, to this to the yeah. city parish at the moment. So it's a, been a good start to the season. Last night, uh, Laura and I ordered dinner. About $50 worth of delivery. She got herself lunch for work the next day. And the delivery driver picked up the wrong Adam's order from the same restaurant. (laughs) We ended up getting like a full family's worth of food, like (laughs) 70 or 80 bucks worth of food for free. Oh, my God. Because they they refunded us our $50 for giving us the wrong order. And we just dined out. That's incredible. The week is off to a flying start. Yeah, yeah. Wasn't that poor family though? I wonder if they got their food. I wonder what they had to have. They just beans on Couldn't toast or something like that. Care less. Oh, that's lovely compassion we're after. But the, the big question, I'm sure everyone's everyone's wondering right now: Did Laura have enough for her dinner? Right, okay, there was enough there. Yeah. Yes, for her lunch. For her dinner. For her midday, for a for midday meal, lunch. which is known as dinner. Um, yeah, I, I guess we'll pick up on it. Last week we were meant to, uh, or at least the City Report feed was meant to have a second episode uh, going out. Um, I was in Costa del Wales soaking up the the Welsh heat, which was a fantastic week to go away. So I wasn't going to be around. Adam, you're going to pick up the reins. Um, but there was a little blip, which meant we couldn't do that. So we wholeheartedly apologise. We promise this week will be a two episode schedule. But before we get going, anything to add? Um, like you said, fantastic footballing weekend. But but any other any other business before we crack on with the football? Um, not that I can think of. I uh, am looking forward to talking about things because I've got um, some stats to back up some claims I made on the most recent episode, which wow. you may have seen in, in the WhatsApp group this morning if you were scrolling through when you woke up. Um, but other than that, no, I've got my dad visiting next week. Haven't seen my dad in a oh, while. So that's yeah, that's that's all that's going on in my world. But we can we can get onto the football now. Yeah, fantastic. Obviously, uh, sort of foreshadowing and, and mentioning the, the clip from last week's episode that went out on the City Report main feed, Twitter feed, which 
cause some controversy, I'd say, and I, I won't be surprised if if you were added to a few more people's block lists after the uh, after after your. I, I, like I said, I was in Wales. I was enjoying the sun. I was on the beach, and I just turned to my phone notification. Ding ding ding, and I must have been scrolling for about twenty minutes. Adam engaging in um, uh, uh, a fruitful Warfare. chat about yeah, fruitful chat about Mister Grealish, who, as you would have known if you listened to last week's episode we spent a lot of time defending so i'll let i'll let you i'll unleash you a little bit later on but as for what's on the cards today um a chunk of today today's episode so we'll be speaking about the current landscape in european football touching on the barcelona situation and a bit on other clubs spending as well and question whether or not there are a few discrepancies in the way it's being received but that's to come later because we will start at the Etihad Stadium where City brushed past Bournemouth 4-0 on Saturday afternoon. We won't spend too long on the game because I feel like whilst we're recording this for a couple of days past, and I mean, it, there wasn't a lot to say about it, but we'll pick up on, on some of the main talking points and start off with then, Adam. What what are your takeaways from the match? My takeaways from the match is that a bunch of grown men had to have a water break playing natural grass in 88-degree heat. (laughs) I'm calling it a day already. I'm off. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. I uh, Listen, growing up, I played in much hotter on (laughs) turf, which adds 10 degrees in full pads in (laughs) football (laughs) and other sports, and we never had... a stop the game for water breaks would you look at this typical armchair supporter commenting on our our english game all the way over in america it was it was horrible inside that stadium thankfully for me where where i was in the sort of south stand corner um it wasn't too bad the first half we we walked from town to the game which was probably a mistake but when you saw the trams going past sort of filled with people it looked like sort of human hellscape but we managed to get in there it was warm i got a few tissues from the toilets to wipe my brow um the intensity of the game the worst part about that was that was the the pyrotechnic show that went on before mm. the match which i don't know what brainwave so I thought it'd be a good idea on on one of the hottest days of ever in the UK to have bloody fireworks and flames being launched out of the out of the pitch before kickoff. But yeah, that made it a lot worse and, and definitely increased the the temperature inside the stadium. The one thing I will say is I actually find standing and doing nothing in that kind of heat a lot worse than yeah. running around. Yeah, like I yeah, would yeah. much prefer to be playing a game and just like kind of going full force into the sweat and mm. the and the the heat instead of just like standing there and trying to be cool mm. yeah yeah i completely agree with that it reminded me actually of a uh one of the last trips i did before before covid and, and lockdown and me and my dad were in italy for a seri well it was a team in seri c but it was the Coppa Italia um, team called Calcio Lecco. And we were there for this sort of very, it was an August game, so it was hot in Italy, um, around Lake Como area in North Italy. And there were the ultras there who passionate, sort of love this, love the club, that they turn out for anything. And they were there, essentially, for want of a better term, bollocks naked, with just the bits covered up, everything else out of on show, the shortest of shorts you could ever imagine. And they were just there tipping water over your, Head, over the head um, and it made me think of that on Saturday when we stood there in the terrace just baking absolutely baking but managed to get through that um, you'll be glad to hear I didn't melt away on the on the sort of East Mancunian tarmac afterwards but in terms of the football itself it was a game that for me never really felt in any jeopardy and, and there won't be many times this season that you'll hear that line uttered by by myself usually um, usually the pessimist but even still even even with my outlook on life and football in general, heading up to that game, it, it felt like a four 0 was par basically, and, and that's what that's what was served up. And after City went three 0 up, it was essentially being played at a pre-season friendly pace, wasn't it? It was, and I'm sure a huge part of that was the heat. And, and once they got mm. the lead, the the you know message from the manager was probably slow things down, conserve the energy, pass the ball around. Um, it's interesting after the West Ham game. We spoke about the kind of new shape that we've seen from City in, in almost a 2-3-5 with the, the fullbacks tucking inside. 
Um, and we saw that again, which was interesting because I had mentioned that I didn't think they would continue to do that in games where um, teams would buck, bunker in a lot more. Mm. Um, but they did. And, and to be fair to Bournemouth, they didn't necessarily bunker in in the Burnley-type sense or teams like no, that they had we've to seen go. come they had to, to go. the Etienne. Um, they had to go. They just, you know, the quality, the difference in quality was there for everyone to see. Um, but look, it's it's a second win in two games, and that's um, something that we find to be rare amongst City these days is, is a couple of wins early in the season. So, yeah, good times all around the Etihad right now. Yeah, for sure, definitely. You mentioned that Bournemouth's um, performance, and, and it, by no means it, was it sort of conservative. Obviously, Scott Parker's... Um, found a name for himself and, and sort of trying to create this style of play. But when you flip in between clubs in the Premier League and the Championship and the Premier League and the Championship, it's difficult to really nail down this sort of philosophy. But they did they did well for me in that first half, which I think is where all the action that is worth speaking about happened. And I actually think um, a byproduct of the of the newfound formation with the new roles for Kyle Walker and Yao Cancelo in the middle of the park was the fact that one of one of the best performers for me, and it wasn't any of City's attackers, it was actually Nathan Ake, because he mm. had a uh, sort of... It, it was an awful lot in comparative terms to what you'd expect for Bournemouth at home early on in the season for City, and, and he was definitely one of the best performers in that first half. And that 45 minutes alone, for me justified City's standpoint of of holding out on a big fee for Ake in the summer. And, and I truly do believe that, I think I've mentioned it a couple of times, but keeping hold of Nathan Ake will be huge for Manchester City. He's, he's a sublime talent. And I remember in the summer, actually, I can't remember which one of the clubs he was linked to. I think it was maybe Newcastle or Everton. And you had, I believe, someone you know come up to you and say, you know, is the hype real? Really, fifty million pounds for Nathan Ake or whatever it was being touted, and you said, "Look, go go back and listen to some of our games after Champions League knockout um, uh, wins and, and Champions League knockout games, and you'll hear us two speak about how much we actually rate him and and how he's fourth choice." I'll say again, is in inverted commas because he is a really, really class footballer, and City have done really well to keep him. Yeah, he was immense, and and it's funny. I think he's probably City's quickest center back over you know large amounts mm. of the pitch we've seen on numerous occasions there was one moment in that first half where he seemed to run from almost midfield back to the corner yeah. flag to to cut out a pass and um he's electric over a long distance um i know that there's some gripes about him and diaz playing together and what that means for city's ball progression but i think what you get from this two three five formation is it doesn't need to be the center backs that are progressing the ball up through the middle of the mm. pitch because you've now got Cancelo and Walker and Rodri in there together. Um, so the onus isn't on Diaz and Ake. And maybe we see that change. Maybe if we see a a Stones-Laporte partnership in which those are two guys that can carry the ball through the middle of the pitch and progress the ball much better than Diaz or Ake, then maybe we don't see Cancelo and Walker both tucking in and maybe maybe we see you know a big change in system. Um but if the onus isn't on them to progress the ball, then Diaz and Ake is a wonderful partnership. And and yeah, Ake, I, I put out a tweet during um, probably during halftime where I said, if Ake keeps playing like this, it's going to be a really long season for John Stones and Imeric Laporte because they're not getting into that starting eleven. Well, should we pick up on that immediately then, actually? Because we've had a question from Joel on the back of his performance and, and they've asked basically... Pep Guardiola, as you know, hasn't had a favourite centre-back partnership for two consecutive seasons now at City. And, and part of that, you feel, is down to injuries and part of that is that he's down to sort of the way the system has been. But they've asked, which pair do you think will start the most games? Now, we've had two matches, two Premier League matches, obviously the Community Shield, but that was a bit, a bit of a, a weird one considering people weren't fit and pre-season tour and lack of minutes, etc. But we've had two Premier League matches in which both Diaz and Nathan Ake have started. Now, uh, there's been a few substitutions. Players have come off, players have come on. But they've been the starting pair. You say there that it could be a long season for John Stones and Imeric Laporte. Laporte's still injured when he's back. We expect it to be around a sort of another month or so. But for John Stones, you do feel as if you're looking at that and going, it's going to take a lot for me to get back into this team at the moment. Yeah. Who do I see starting the most games together? Obviously, I think Diaz is is an automatic starter. Um, 
I think the safe, and I'll be a little contradictory here. I think the safest answer is Diaz and one of Stones or Laporte. I think what we've seen from Stones and Laporte, their ability to progress the ball, their ability to switch the play. With that being said, I don't think Nathan Ake is poor on the ball. But when you have players like John Stones and Imeric Laporte who have the technical ability of some midfielders at this level, um, then it's hard to say that Nathan mm. Ake is the you know the best on the ball out of the bunch. Um, but I do truly believe that if Ake doesn't regress from this level that he's at right now, what I mean, why would you take him out of that mm. There, like, there's just no reason to. Unless you feel, uh, unless it's tactical, um, and you do feel like you need a Laporte when he comes back for you know specific um, you know specific passes and you know that that kind of classic Laporte sweeping raking mm. pass out over to the right wing. Um, I'd love to go back and watch. I probably should rewatch the Bournemouth game and see how much of that was happening from Ake or Diaz. Yeah. But like I mentioned, the entire system is now changed in which those two center backs don't have to do much ball progression. Um, so I think the safest answer is probably Diaz and one of Stones or um, Laporte. But I'll put my neck out and say that Nathan Ake is the second choice center back behind Ruben Diaz right now and will remain that way as long as he continues to play that way. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, John Stone's got minutes, didn't he, on Saturday, but it wasn't really the game he's got to stake his claim um, because that that second half was, was almost a non-event, really, apart from, from the own goal. I'll, I'll make the case for Nathan Ake then because I think one thing he has going that John Stones doesn't, and while I merit Laporte is out, nobody else in that city sort of four man centre back cohort is the fact he's left footed. And we know for a fact it is a, a genuine fact Yao Cancelo is not left footed. He he plays at left back, but he has got a, a right foot as his strongest foot. Um, that sounds awfully agricultural, but it, it's just the way it is. And, and whilst you do have your starting left back as a right footer, I don't think you can underestimate the, the benefit and the power of having a, a naturally left-footed footballer in that in that lineup. Because if you have a back four full of right footers, that's great. But just just wait and see how 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 much those uh, Jack Grealish dissenting voices pick up when when he's not getting the the right system and you know other players as well. It does feel a little bit like it's it's one sided when you do have the full right footers. So I'll say that Nathan Ake's left foot could be his his calling card this season and. The fact that he was involved in a in a transfer saga, if you like, and and who knows what conversations went on behind closed doors that you presume his his entourage was saying, you know what, if you want us to stay, then play us more. And it definitely seems so far this season. I think he, he started all three games, hasn't he? The, the Liverpool one included. It definitely seems as though he has that. He has been sort of his role has increased whilst Laporte is on the sidelines. And I guess all we can say at this point now is. Let's wait and see what happens when Laporte comes back. But at the moment, I'm totally with you. He is he is up there with one of City's most important players after the first two games. I think we could also probably see him at left back a lot. Mm. Um, I mean, you know, we obviously signed Sergio Gomez this week officially, um, but we could easily situate see a situation in which Kyle Walker picks up an injury, Jocancello moves to the right, and I think yeah. if that were the case and. Jocancello is being forced to play on the right. I think Nathan Ake is probably the first choice left back in that situation. Mm. Yeah. Um, I think it'll be at least a full season before we see Sergio Gomez getting serious minutes in big games. So I think, you know, there's a case to be made for mid-December trip to Anfield and Kyle Walker's got a knock. You'll probably see Nathan Ake out there on the left because of what he gives you at the back. Um and then potentially, you know, that two-three-five s- system in possession maybe turns into a three-three-four or something mm. like that. Um, so, I think he'll play a ton, a ton of football this season. But I think it may be kind of split between left back and center back because we are short on options at fullback. 
Are you telling me Sergio Gomez isn't going to come in and get 15 goals and 25 assists in his debut season? Is that, is that, isn't that how it works? I mean, he never did it at Villa, but maybe if they count <laughs> hockey assists. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, okay, let's do our our weekly Erling Haaland segment then, because I feel like it's it's in his contract that we have to speak about him. Um, no goal for him, of course, on his home debut. Could have been very different had a certain Philip Walter Foden looked up, but hey-ho. Um, an assist, though, to show for his 70-odd minutes on the pitch instead. There have been a few criticisms. Now, as dumb as they are, we do have to sort of pick up on them and try and, and set the record straight around his performance because I think one outlet, um, have a guess which one it is, highlighted that he only had seven touches during the 90 minutes. But my immediate response, as it's been all summer in the build-up to the season, as it will be throughout his entire time at City, it doesn't matter if he's involved, uh, if he only has eight touches or whatever, if he's involved and is contributing to an attack, which he definitely was, because that was superb hold-up play to slot in City for, sorry, Gundogan for the opener, it doesn't matter what, what touches he has or what his heat map looks like or how many, how many I don't know, passes he completes throughout the 90. He is there to offer a pinnacle and a, a focal point for City's attack, which he most definitely did against Bournemouth. He did. And I mean, you saw the opening goal, back to goal, hold up the ball, turn and play a little pass through the lines and, and Ilkay Gundogan is in behind. Um, yeah, I mean, we said this last week that it doesn't matter if he has one or two touches in the game, if the two touches lead to goals, whether they are assists mm. or, um, you know, any sort of contribution to a goal move, um, then he's had a successful day out. Um, you know, another thing that we've mentioned that has to be brought up more often it has to be brought up more often it is the fact that he is now such a presence in that attack that there is so much more room for the likes of Kevin De Bruyne Ilkay Gundogan Phil Foden whoever it may be to get on the ball and do their own thing Mm. Um, I think it was you maybe who tweeted that during the game saying that you know the reason we're seeing this kind of um, I won't call it a remontada from Ilkay Gundogan because we've seen him go through through goal scoring periods like this in the past, but a guy like him is going to benefit so much from Erling Holland because you look at that first goal, Erling Holland gets the ball with his back to goal at the edge of the box and three defenders all of a sudden just collapse on him because yeah, he is yeah. such a presence. And if you've got three defenders collapsing on one man and the, the people that are now not marked are Kevin De Bruyne, Ilkay Gundogan and Phil Foden, then you're screwed essentially you've got like you've got no you're just picking your poison there so he is so beneficial to the attack whether he has zero touches or a hundred because of the attention that he draws so i couldn't care less what his stats are at the end of the day he's still extremely beneficial i i I think it would be concerning if he finished the game with i don't know 35 touches unless you know he, he was scoring six goals in that in that game it'd show something was going wrong elsewhere if if he was the one who was being sort of told to go and make something happen with 30 odd touches it'd be a bit weird um and you mentioned there the fact that he, he draws space so much can you imagine how many managers are going to spend hours and hours and hours in the build-up to playing City this season trying to figure a way to stop Erling Haaland and if you're successful at that well the news flash behind you you've got Ilkay Gondwan, Kevin De Bruyne even Rodri who we know had an eye for a goal I think it was seven Premier League strikes last season or something uh, ludicrous like that so yeah he's certainly he's certainly more than his goal scoring would suggest and and I think that's something people sort of used as a stick to beat him with when he joined City I remember reading numerous pieces about how Erling Haaland might score goals but will he be able to contribute in City's build-up play well it took what 20 odd minutes of his home debut at the Etihad Stadium to, to dispel those rumours as it took about an hour at the London Stadium to, to dispel the other ones that he'd be a, he wouldn't be able to finish and score goals in the Premier League but like again it's not going to be one of his most remembered performances in a City shirt but it was more than more than um, more than good enough let's put it that way um, we'll finish on this then 
uh, in terms of the our Bournemouth review, and, and we'll use it to segue onto our next topic, and that was Ilkay Gundogan, as you've mentioned there. He started the season really, really well. It was another stellar performance, obviously scored the opening goal um, for City on Saturday, and it came a day before the news that he has been appointed as City's main captain for the season. We had a chat not too long ago, how, how and this goes to show our levels of intellect, but we had a chat about how we thought it'd be either Ruben Diaz or Kevin De Bruyne, only for an outsider in that captain's race in, in Ilkay Gundogan to come through and take the armband for himself. Yeah, and I, I gotta say, I'm delighted with with mm. the appointment. I mean, this is a team in which there's probably I can probably count on one hand the players that I would feel that would be bad for the role of captain. Yeah, I think this is just a, a team with such great characters and great personalities, and maybe not all of those personalities lead to the leadership needed to be a captain. And um, it's funny. Have you ever listened to the the Peter Crouch podcast episode, the Captain's episode? I don't think you have now. Well, they they go through kind of all of the insane things that captains have to do. That mm. you know, we think of a captain as in the huddle before the match, yeah. You know, geeing everybody up, you know, screaming on the pitch. But they've got all these insane tasks outside. And maybe you know, maybe it's different at City. Maybe it was you know different for for Peter Crouch at Liverpool or Spurs or whatever. But you know, he talks about how they're in charge of sorting out the tickets for family members of the players and, and Jeez, all this. They've yeah, just like got yeah. all these roles. And I think Ilkay Gundogan is is perfect for that. Yeah. He just seems like such a level-headed, down-to-earth guy, but he's also a fantastic leader. He's, you know, one of the most experienced players. He's he's done things and achieved things that so many players in this team have not, you know, world cup. He's been in world cup finals. He's been mm. a champions. He scored a goal in a champions league final. Um, so yeah, I've, I've got no gripes with it. De- de- despite the fact that on our, um, <laughs> on our election night, I, yeah. I didn't vote for him. Yeah. Yeah. A third horse in that race. Um, you'd be hard pressed, wouldn't you, to feel, to find anyone who's, actively against this appointment in fact I, I don't think I've found anyone who's who sort of said you know why is this the case why wasn't it De Bruyne why wasn't it Ruben Diaz um, it's been known for some time how revered Ilkay Gundogan is in the City dressing room and obviously his, his antics against Aston Villa on the final day last season immortalised him forever and almost took him up or at least you feel alongside this captain's appointment took him up to that next bracket of, of sort of legendary status if you like if we can bring that old chestnut back um there was a lot of chatter wasn't there about Gundwan leaving the club in the summer he came out and put that to bed quite quite swiftly so he, there's obviously an affinity there with City you know you get the feeling in modern day football there are players who like the club but there aren't many and this I don't just mean this City but I mean it's a genuine like big big clubs around the around Europe the players who like where they play and you know would come out and say good things about the club, but there are, there are a few that genuinely love it and most are open to moving if the money is right or the circumstances is right, which is a player we'll sort of come on to very shortly. But but for, for Ilkay Gundwan, there is definitely an affinity there with the club and we'll wait and see what happens with his contract extension because I think that's potentially the only sort of flaw in this appointment is that if he doesn't sign an extension, it is sort of he's going to leave soon, then there is an issue there as to why, you, see, you know, the, the, the continuity, but you feel as if he is in the right place to succeed for a, a good number of years as, as, as City captain. Yeah, and I wouldn't really be worried about whether he's leaving or extending his contract. You know, I think Pep seems like the kind of manager that when it comes to somebody captaining his squad, it's way more about the present than the future. And mm. You know, Fernandinho was what two seasons, I believe. Yeah, was cap club captain. Yeah, and... David Silva too, as well. Yeah. So, oh no, sorry, it... David Silva would have been one. It'd have been one, wouldn't it? After yeah, company, yeah, the one after Vinny. Yeah. So it seems like the kind of thing that's like you are the right man to lead this team this season, and then we'll we'll see what happens yeah. next summer. And therefore, if it's a new captain every single year, I couldn't really care less. You know, I feel like in the company era we have been spoiled with this, you know, decade-long captain who through injuries and through long periods out of the team was still the captain and still the vocal leader. I feel like 
we were really spoiled with that. And that's not necessarily normal Mm -hmm. to have a captain like that. I mean, plenty of clubs have had captains like that in the past, may have them now, but it's, it's not necessarily the norm. Um, so I'm totally fine with this, you know, pick a new captain every single year and whether they're leaving or not. And, you know, it's the kind of players that aren't leaving because they dislike the club or whatever. Like you mentioned, they're, mm-hmm. they're still going to give their all for the club and, and for the armband. So, yeah, I've got no issue with that. We've had a question from Rahul about Gundwan's role. Now, if you can, if you, if you can potentially make this possible I don't want you to mention either the word Barcelona or transfer in your answer to this but it's about the here and now and we'll see what happens we've got a big segment on that coming up in literally minutes but the question from Rahul is do you think Bernardo Silva will be able to get ahead of Gundogan in the pecking order um say for example the transfer window shots I know I broke my own rule but I'm allowed after watching how Gundwan and Haaland have, have combined in the first two games? Is it now a case of Gundwan has, has not only got the armband, but he's also sort of been elevated into that into that uh, starting role, if you like, one of the first names on the team sheet alongside De Bruyne, Haaland, Diaz, etc.? I would say that him getting the armband doesn't affect his playing time. Okay. I think you've, you can see that with Fernandinho. You know, he was the, he was the club captain, but how many games that he started yeah. last season probably less than 15 total um so i don't think that affects it i think the only thing that would affect it is performance in games and as of now gundawan you can't see getting dropped anytime soon mm-hmm. um bernardo silva is obviously an extremely important player to this team and i think in the the big games that require a Bernardo Silva, somebody with an endless battery that's going to get up and down the pitch and up and down the pitch. I mean, Gundogan, for all of his wonderful, wonderful attributes, he's not the most mobile guy anymore. Um, He's incredible in and around the box. And when City have loads of possession, he's so, so important. But when I think of going to Anfield um, you know, maybe going to Stanford Bridge and you've got players like N'Golo Conte and, and guys like that that can really get up and down the pitch. That's when I feel like Bernardo Silva would be at his most important to this team. Um, I won't commit to saying Gundogan is ahead of Bernardo Silva in the pecking order, but I will say that I think it's way, way, way more of a decision than it was in the past 18 months. Certainly, and and if we know one thing about Guardiola teams, it's that you can, as a as a player, as a part of that squad, you can get yourself to a position where you are undroppable. And right now, you have to say what um, two games in, one goal. I don't think the the pass for the penalty counts as an assist, although it should. But he's definitely been involved a lot. You mentioned there though that you don't think he's got the legs anymore. I'd say. Did he ever really? He was never really for me this sort of combative. I mean, I suppose you put him under the the guile of box to box, and and perhaps he has regressed a little bit in that. But in terms of comparing him to Bernardo Silva, the two completely different profile of players. And I do agree, Anfield, Stamford Bridge, maybe not Old Trafford, but uh, Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. You do need that sort of that that all all action midfielder in Bernardo Silva, but. Ilkay Gundogan's definitely playing himself into a, a more sort of prestigious role, if you like, in the team at the moment. And we'll wait and see where that one goes. Um, right then, let's let's move on to the main body of today's show, albeit we've got about half an hour to get through this, which may not be enough time, and we may have to sort of siphon sections off to another episode. But we wanted to switch our attentions away from City slightly and cast our lens on the wider football landscape for a while starting off with, as promised, the Bernardo Silva and the Barcelona situation, specifically speaking about the state of Barcelona's finances. Um, Since we last spoke then last week, Adam, there have been a few briefings from trusted City sources in the media around the move, with the school of thought being that City won't stand in Bernardo Silva's way, as we've known for a number of players that's been the case should he want to leave, but a valuation of around €100 million will be having to be met by Barcelona if he is to go. 
the issue from Barcelona's point of view, as has been suggested by journalists this week, and I quote, they're absolutely skint. Now, we'll delve into why that might be shortly, whether that's self-inflicted or is a product of external factors like everyone's best friend at Manchester City, uh, Senor Tebas. But Adam, they're refusing to back down on this and they are continuing to push for Bernardo Silva's signature. And until the transfer deadline shuts, and obviously with all signs pointing towards Bernardo Silva wanting the move too, it's just refusing to go away, isn't it? It is. And it's worth mentioning before we go into any of this, this this issue with Barcelona, it's not the fact that they don't have money. They have a ton of money. They have a ton of cash. Mm. The issue is with the new La Liga um, financial rules, we'll, we'll call it almost, it's almost an American version of, you know, of salary cap like we see in the NFL and, and NBA and stuff in which they have to have a certain, you know, revenue to, to spending ratio. And that includes wages, transfer fees, things like that. If, if City's valuation is 100 million euros, Barcelona have 100 million euros to pay City mm. for Bernardo Silva. And we also have to keep in mind, it's not 100 million euros up front. It's, you know, it's spread out over yeah. the length of his contract if they sign him to, you know, 100, 100 million euros over a five-year contract, then, you know, they're not paying 100 million euros up front. Um, the issue is they would not be able to put on their books 100 million euros spent on Bernardo Silva. They don't have that kind of revenue mm. coming in. So the issue is they can't register any of these players. We saw it earlier in the week with them barely registering uh, Kessie, Christensen, and Lewandowski in time. Um, so if Barcelona played in Serie A, they'd have the money to spend on, on Bernardo Silva, and Bernardo Silva would probably already be a Barcelona player. Um, but no, it's not going away. We've seen multiple pretty important quotes this week. You know, Bernardo Silva did his interview with ESPN mm-hmm. in which he said some things that maybe got spun and interpreted certain ways by certain outlets. Um, but when you really look into the quotes, he's saying what we've known for ages, which is he and City have a great relationship. They both have great respect for each other. Um, he's been told by the club, if we get the money we're asking for you, we'll let you go. And um, if we don't get it, you're going to stay here and you're going to continue to be a fantastically important player for us. And that is, you know, that's what Silva said. He said, you know, if I stay here, then I'm going to continue to fight for the club and, and, and play as hard as I can. And we saw that last year, you know, this saga has been going on for years. Mm. It's just that yeah. we've had a COVID stricken market and, and things like that. And, you know, he's been asking, asking to leave the club since 2020. And look at this, look at the performances he's put in since 2020. So I have no worry about that. Um, And just, I don't see him going this summer. We saw Kevin De Bruyne come out and say, you know, the way I see it now, he'll be a Manchester City player this season. I think when you look at Barcelona's financial issues and the, and the hoops they have to jump through, um, you just can't see it happening. Yeah. I'm glad you, you mentioned that Kevin De Bruyne quote, because it, it took me back a little bit, not in the sense that there was anything wrong with it, but it, it was potentially the first time I've ever seen a, a senior figure of a club, a senior player, come out and sort of address rumours that, you know, we'd be led to believe these players don't listen or hear about at all. You know, they're just sort of the stuff that's that's uh, uh, regarded and reserved for Twitter and places like that. But he came out and addressed it head on and said, you know, this is a situation this is what it is in black and white. And, and it was almost like, okay, then Bernardo Silva, your move. And and don't get me wrong. Bernardo Silva is not someone who's ever going to down tools. And why would he, you know, he's in a, he's in a situation where Ivory goes and be the main man at a Barcelona squad rebuilding and all the, the lovely connotations that, that old historic institution uh, harbors. Or again, he's one of the main men in a, in a up and coming city team with one of the most exciting squads that European football has, has probably ever seen. Um, Again, though, I think it's safe to say Bernardo Silva obviously wants the move, and you can you can debate amongst yourself as to why you you think he might want to to move to a club that is seemingly in disarray. But but it is what it is. I saw I can't remember where it was. I heard a great thing from from someone somewhere that's terrible of me and and should sort of <laughs> accredit the sources, but I just cannot remember. It's been a long week. But but they said basically you get to a point as a footballer where where money doesn't matter and success somewhat doesn't matter. Bernardo Silva's won a 
lot at City. So if you could get the opportunity to move closer to home, some people might say, but in a COVID, uh, in a, a non COVID world, which we, we seem to be headed to, you know, travel has opened up. He can he can go to and from Manchester to Portugal should he wish, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But you know, it's the climate, it's the culture, it's everything that he is. He sort of remembers as a child growing up, and, and you can't you can't legislate for those comforts as a, as a human being. So you know, like I said, debate amongst yourselves where you might want to move. For me, I see it as a human a human move, and mm. you know. Barcelona in, are in disarray, but they're still Champions League regulars. Um, obviously, last season, a little bit of an asterisk on that. But we've actually had a question from Law Lask on this uh, situation because there was that moment, wasn't there, in Saturday's game when he came off the bench. And I don't know if you picked up on this on, on the on the coverage, on the TV coverage, but inside the stadium, all four corners of the Etihad Stadium were in unison singing his name. And it, it felt, for me, it was, it was quite touching. And I can imagine if that was you or you know that was someone close to you you'd be you'd be moved by it because it was it was genuinely so loud and it felt it didn't feel like um celebratory it felt more sort of not in mourning but that sort of in between like almost a plea from the city supporters but we've had a question from law lass who took a a different view on the on the incident to me and they asked us starting the quote was I just being a grumpy sod when I felt I couldn't join in with the mass Bernardo love in the stadium? Obviously, I love the guy. He's a great player. But he had all that from the fans last season and still wants to get out to Barcelona of all places. Now, I've sort of said my my two pennies on that, Adam. What do you think about that? Um, I see no reason why you shouldn't join in and uh, on the Bernardo loving. Um He's been extremely, extremely respectful in the way he's handled this situation. Just look at so many situations around Europe when a player wants a move and the absolute stink they put up to get a move. Look at Lewandowski. Mm. He's at Bayern Munich for nearly a decade. When in Champions League, Bundesliga's um, Pokals, and he burnt every single bridge with the club to get a move. And... If that had happened with Bernardo Silva, then I would totally understand the, that that feeling. But I think this is the kind of player that, you know, people have to understand that it's, like you said, it's human beings. They, he, he probably wants to leave for, that hasn't, the reasons that he wants to leave have nothing to do with City. Mm. I, you know, if, if he could take City and place them in a place closer to home, he'd stay at City. Yeah, you know it, it's that simple. He's got he's got no issues with the club, clearly, um, and you're right. The him kind of you know being the last out on the pitch after the game, clapping the fans, giving his shirt away. It felt a bit like, and bear with me on this comparison, Vincent Company's lap of honor after yeah. the Leicester game, in yeah, which yeah, yeah. we still weren't sure if he was yeah. leaving yet. Because we didn't know he was leaving until before the FA Cup final. In after, two weeks after, after that, after that, oh, yeah, he, it was yeah. after that, yeah, yeah. Um, so we're like, you know, is he, is he saying bye? Is he not saying bye? We don't really know. Um, but I have absolutely no gripes with Bernardo Silva, mm. and if he ends up leaving this summer for Barcelona, I'm gonna have no gripes with him still, and I'm gonna look back on, on his time as. An extremely positive thing and, and a very important member of this team and that and this club um you know look at look at players like ferran torres mm. you want to you want to dislike a player for the way they left the club dislike ferran torres <laughs> leaving and and making saying things about being a stepping stone and blah, if you if you dislike that fine but what has bernardo silva done to warrant any negativity his way mm. Yeah, yeah, completely. I agree with that, and I think that the point Law Lass was making was was the fact that looking at Barcelona right now and comparing them to City as footballing entities, it, it seems like a nonsensical move. But as we've as we've mentioned, it, it goes beyond that. But I guess we'll we'll indulge in the in the sort of the hysteria and we'll we'll chat about Barcelona's situation off the pitch and whether or not there are, like I said at the top, a few discrepancies with the way um City have been been reported and, and it will lead on to another club who are who are having a busy summer. Um there's been loads covered on it, genuinely loads and, and, and I'll put a disclaimer out immediately. Neither I or Adam sort of proclaims to be some 
fantastic football finance experts. There are people who are clued up on this much more than we are. Check it out. One of the best uh, bits I've heard was from um, MCFC Spaces, a new account on Twitter, and they had a chat with, uh, I I was trying to think of a a term to describe it. The best I come up with was Barcelona Twitter personality, Rafa Hernandez, which I'm not sure if that's an insult or a compliment, but, but, you know, they've got an iconic, uh, Avi, if you follow anything to do with Barcelona, it's probably there. But they they explain the history between La Liga and Barcelona's financial situation and the policies, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and and sort of put it in black and white for someone who may not have understood who thought that Barcelona was skin and then or, or skin in the sort of the genuine sense of the word had no money in the bank and then were being able to buy players. Um, but for me, actually, one of the most depressing sides of this situation that was sort of unfolded since what. COVID maybe, 2020, since that sort of really shook La Liga up, is the change in opinion around Barcelona. Now, our our personal stories are different in terms of how we got into football and the sort of environment we grew up uh, watching football in. But I think I speak for you and I speak for a lot of people here when I say Barcelona were always a club many people admired and wished success upon, especially in those early pep years throughout throughout all of that era. They were, they were essentially the epitome, the pinnacle of European football, gold standard, if you like. But fast forward 15 years or so, and there's, it's borderline embarrassing, I feel, watching some of what's going on. And, and now you mentioned a bit before the fact that the La Liga rules are archaic, genuinely archaic. Tebas is a lunatic and I think that's a sort of fair assumption of the of the man. They need to change because they're they're not only damaging Barcelona, but they're damaging loads of clubs in Spain. Sevilla have had problems, Real Betty have had problems. Um Almeria, a team who've just been promoted from the second division and having to sell one of their best players to Villarreal, I think it is for 30 million euros, because they're having similar problems and can't register players themselves. But Going back to Barcelona and the the gold standard or the once gold standard of football in Europe just seems to be an entire organisation that feels as if it's got a streak of toxicity running through it and a really bad ego problem at the moment. I think this is the issue is the fact that this is being painted as a Barcelona issue when it's not. I mean, Barcelona have had plenty of financial issues and they've they've dug this hole for themselves. They've been digging for a decade now, essentially. Um, you know, you look at the, the wages that, that players are on at the club and, you know, players that, you know, play 10 games a season are on 300, 300 grand a week and, and things like that. Um, but it is a La Liga problem as well, like you mentioned. Um, you know, I was working in an Almeria game yesterday and they've got this fantastic striker up front, newly promoted team, scored a goal in the opening day against Real Madrid and, you know, within minutes of, of this performance, the, the commentator's talking about, well, they're, they're selling him for $30 million in order to register mm. the three other signings they've made this summer. And mm. it's like, you know, this, is, this isn't really a Barcelona problem. Um, yeah, Barcelona have been the gold standard. My, Barce- my opinion on especially the two big clubs in Spain has really, really soured over the last few years. And yeah, a, a huge same. part of that is is for me... I totally attribute club personalities to their fans. And if the fans are a certain way, then I wish nothing but failure for the club on the pitch, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Seeing the videos of Franca de Young, you know, being booed and getting getting heckled on his way into yeah. training. And, you know, you see years ago when Ronaldo was getting whistled at, at Real Madrid for like 30 bad minutes in a game. Mm. And it's like, it's things like that that make me just despise clubs like that. Mm. These huge, entitled, entitled clubs. Um, so to be totally honest, I I agree with everything that you said, that they were the gold standard and the pep years and, and all that stuff. But I think this is fucking hilarious. <laughs> I think it is absolutely hilarious to see them having to sell basically – from a club metaphor standpoint, sell their own organs, yeah. selling off their TV rights and their media companies and, you know, hosting fucking weddings on the pitch of the new <laughs> camp. I think it is absolutely hilarious and I hope it never ends. Yeah, yeah. And it's been, they've died a long and painful death and, and you know, it's difficult to imagine a world where they'll go out of business because... You, 
eventually, if it got to that point, someone would come in and save them, or, or you know, something would be moved to make sure they didn't it. But the fact that you go back to it um, when they sold Neymar for what is it about 180 million pounds or something like that? That was that was the success, the future of the club right there. But instead, they they spunked it on absolute nobodies, and then suddenly down the line, I think that the, the biggest indictment is the fact that. Philippe Coutinho, who came on, or was dubbed as this Neymar replacement, came on in the, what was it, 8-2 Barcelona defeat uh, in the Champions League to Bayern Munich and, and went on to win the Champions League. You know, it, it, it's stuff like that, which is just, it hasn't started in the last year or the last two years or the last three years. They've been a club who have been horrendously ran um, for, for a number of years now. And, and I guess to bring it back to a City point of view, there, there's a lot that is made of Manchester City's operations. And while there are plenty of valid criticisms, and you will not find me, you'll not find Adam sort of coming on here to defend certain aspects of City's ownership, but you do feel as if Barcelona are getting away with, and, and have been, and, and you know, we, we, we've touched on it for, for, for the majority of this segment, but they've been getting away with it pretty lightly. And whether or not that's a La Liga-inflicted uh, problem, whether or not that's a Barcelona-inflicted problem, spoiler, the truth is it's probably somewhere in the middle. They're essentially gambling the future of the football club and, and using the Barcelona brand and the history of that institution as a way to mortgage finances in the present and the still being able to be sort of... I, I don't know I don't know whether or not it, it's out of spite or out of... Um, Annoyance, but they're still being able to get away with it. And, and realistically, if Barcelona were having such problems with their with their finances, they, sh- they wouldn't have spent nearly as much money as they did this summer. And granted, as you mentioned, they have the money there to do it. But if they were that worried about the, the the state of the football club and the players they've got there on wages, they'd work the opposite way around. And it just feels as though this this method and this this the way of operation just shouldn't be. They shouldn't be getting away with it as they have been. No, and it's interesting. I think there is a a direct comparison between Manchester United and Barcelona. Yes. The issue, yeah. the difference is Barcelona doesn't play in a league in which them being an absolute dumpster fire sees them punished on the pitch. Yeah. Whereas United being a dumpster fire, there are bigger and better clubs in the league now that have totally surpassed them. Um. Yeah, I look, you go and look at Barcelona's wages and you see players on half a million pounds a week, 400,000 grand a week, 370 grand a week. Um, and you just can't help but have no sympathy for them, mm. no matter how great they were once. Um, but like you said, you know, they, they sold Neymar and and all this, all these complaints from Spain about clubs like City and PSG inflating the market, and then you go look at the money spent by clubs like Real Madrid and Barcelona, mm. and you and you see the wages being paid, and it's nowhere near. It, you know, City aren't paying any players anywhere near the the likes of Frankie De Jong, no. Sergi Busquets. Just it doesn't happen. Um, so, yeah, I can't help but feel no sympathy for them. Um, and honestly, every single time I see a new article from The Athletic or, or anybody like that, I, I get out the popcorn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, that, that, that's a, it's a sad state of affairs, isn't it? Because I know you had your, your, you said that you're know you you're enjoying it and you're looking at their, their demise. But for me, Real Madrid were always that club. And, and you know, in that El Clasico rivalry, there the was, if you could have it, if it was possible <clears throat> to have a good versus bad. For me, it was always Barcelona, who were the team that, I won't go as far as saying as as I was a sort of supporter of by you know that's that's just nonsense. But in that era of dominance between Barcelona and Real Madrid, I was always, always, always rooting for Barcelona against Real Madrid because Real Madrid were this sort of idea of of you know the Galactico era. They, they would be the ones who would be signing absolutely everybody, um, whereas Barcelona had had a way from academy to first team and Champions League winners have, have sort of have been the benefit of that. Um, we were going to speak about another issue in European football and that's the spending of Chelsea, but we're a little bit pressed for time. So we, we'll maybe touch on that later on in the week, depending on what happens. But I guess we'll wrap up by saying, do you think that there's the there have been a few discrepancies in the way that 
other clubs have operated compared to Manchester City. And I'll, again, I'll use a caveat: we're not here to defend the 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 ugly side, if you like. But there have been okay. So quickly touching on it, Chelsea could rack up three hundred million pounds spent this window, and there's hardly been a peep. Manchester United again are another club who have who have recklessly spent over the years and are currently in well the bottom of the table, which isn't something we've mentioned yet. Um, but I guess what I'm getting at is that. It, there is this idea, or as there, there has been this idea, that City have have as much money in the world as they like, can spend as much money in the world as they like, and it automatically equals success. But when you actually strip it down, you realise that if the people aren't in place, then the the entire building's going to crumble, and and that's what that's what feels this summer has not necessarily been touched upon in the sense of Barcelona, in the sense of Chelsea, who have just had an ownership change and are almost Todd Bowley's looking for this lovely PR um, PR boost from the Chelsea supporters. Manchester United have been doing it for years. It just feels as though there are, there are like I said, discrepancies in the way the operations have been reported. Yeah, absolutely. And that's <clears throat> that's fair to say for every industry that new money is always going to be criticized, even though new money is oftentimes just as wicked as the old money. Mm. Um, yeah, you're right. It's it's like if Real Madrid spend half a billion pounds in one summer and win the Champions League, they're a great European, mm. they're, they're European royalty. If City spend half a billion pounds in a in a summer transfer window and win the Champions League, it's, you know, they, they've bought the Champions League. Um, I think a huge issue is the social media era and the era that City started spending in, in which viral takes and things like that have become hot. Whereas, you know, back in the day, you couldn't repost a newspaper. You know, you couldn't. <laughs> you could you stick it in your leave. window. <laughs> you could, yes, but you couldn't. By. You couldn't leave yeah. a comment within yeah. seconds and and a like and yeah. It just became this thing in which criticizing and we're at fault for this. Because if any big outlet, if any big outlet criticizes City for spending or whatever, or or you know, puts up a, a wrong uh, a wrong number for a transfer fee or inflates a fee or whatever, and we're sitting here saying, oh, they just do it for the clicks. But you go and look at the nine hundred responses, and eight hundred and ninety nine mm. of them are are from City fans, mm. and it's like, that's the clicks. we're doing this, we're doing this to ourselves, yeah. Like if you stop interacting with this, maybe they go away. I, yeah. I don't know, but yeah, it's Chelsea have just absolutely spent out of their ass this summer, and um, the coverage is Todd Bowley's trying to make a splash and make a name for himself and appease the fans after a tumultuous season last year. And um, you know, when United spend money, it's it's money that they've generated because they mm. were so successful in the '90s and the early <laughs> 2000s. As if that has anything to fucking do with 2022. Mm. Um, which that that's probably my biggest bone to pick is when when you say to a United fan or or somebody like that, well, um, you know, United also spent huge money and were successful in the you know early 2000s or whatever and they say well we spent that money because we were successful and it's like city have won what four out of the last yeah. five premier leagues six out of the last 10 the most successful team in in english football by a landslide in the last decade where do you think they're getting their money yeah. you know sh- when's the last time shake mensor put money into this club i'd love to know mm. i mean yeah. other than you know financing maybe infrastructure things When's the last time Sheikh Mansour had to write a check to sign a left back or a, a midfielder? Yeah, you know it, yeah. Like, that just it doesn't that doesn't happen. Did he did he bankroll a revolution? Yeah, but the revolution started, and the revolution that 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 he created created a sustainable club that brings in tons of money on player sales and revenue and and whatever. Um, so yeah, the coverage is bullshit, but I don't think that's anything new and that sounds like a lovely place to finish um we were going to touch on the the imminent arrival of Sergio Gomez, which I don't know if you noticed today. He he was announced by certain outlets online, but not the club itself. So um, something's been slipped up on there, and and we expect by the time this goes out, it will be signed, sealed, delivered. He's a really exciting player. We'll touch on that in the episode later on in the week, but I think we'll call it a day there. Anything else to add? It's been quite the I, episode. I do have one. 
I've oh, got wow. a bit of a bit of housekeeping. We'll say. Oh yeah, go on. I, I haven't. I haven't capped off my Jack Grealish rant yet. Oh dear. Yeah, go on. So yeah. So this is on the back of. Um, so you claim that if Jack Grealish had the benefit of hockey assists, which to translate are. Um, also known as pre-assists, the pass that leads to an assist that leads to a goal, um, Jack Grealish's numbers would look significantly better. Um, you've done some research, I believe. I did do some research. I sat in my living room last night with a pen and paper, and I turned on the um, City's goal compilation from the Premier League last year where they have every single goal on, on YouTube. Um, and I made a little little tally of every single goal in which the move was started by Jack Grealish. Nothing, if it was an extremely ordinary in which he just yeah. made a sideways pass and then Cancelo whipped the ball into the box, then I didn't count that. But a move in which the pass before the pass was from Jack Grealish and it led to a goal. Jack Grealish last season finished with three goals, three assists in the Premier League. If you count the pass before the pass, he would have finished with three goals, ten assists. Dear that's, me. That's three less goals than his best ever, or three less goal contributions than his best ever season at Aston Villa. And that's not counting the Champions League or yeah. the Cups that he also played in. In fact, yeah. I think some of his best performances were in the Champions League yeah. group stages. So, yeah. um, yes, I feel vindicated, and that's where I'd like to end this episode that'll do me um i've been amos murphy i've been adam booker and until next time see you later make sure you're geared up for man city's end of season running with mcdelivery great food delivered right to your door By using McDelivery, you won't miss a moment of City's crucial running and just like Kevin De Bruyne, they deliver your order exactly where you want it. Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. Are you in? At participating restaurants only, 18 and plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.